Welcome to Saga Shorts, where we're reviewing the tales and anecdotes appended to the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Welcome one and all to our first Saga Short since December of 2021. 2021? Yeah. That is a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah. If I recall, it was around that time that you were um, uh, preparing to go on your sabbatical. Uh, you were going mm-hmm. to uh, on a trip to Iceland with the family, going to live in Reykjavik right. in the winter. Yep. Yeah. I also remember, um, if I'm not mistaken, you made some grand promises about how we'd get Lockstyle Saga researched and recorded in, in the first six months of uh, 2022. Uh, did I say that exactly? I, d- I don't remember the second part of that. I mean, that's what I remember. Yes, you mm-hmm. did. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's evidence of that somewhere. Could be at the nah, end of an episode so. somewhere. but uh, Definitely not. No, nah, that's not important. Not important now. Don't worry about it. Uh, we might have worked on Lackstyler Saga for over a year. And but sure, can you call it work when we enjoyed it so much, Andy? <laughs> sure, uh, we might be in uh, June of 2023 now, but, uh, you know. Well, it's only a... A year later than you claim I predicted. Maybe I just misspoke when I said the year. Sure. I, mean, I don't recall predicting any of that, but you know. You did, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> because we are done with Lockstyle Saga now, and we're on to something fresh and new. I love fresh and new. So uh, what new hero will we meet? What fresh adventures do we have in store? Well, this time, we're going to meet an elegant hero from Western Iceland. Okay, uh, lots of heroes come from Western Iceland. We're going to be a little bit more specific. Sure, yeah. Uh, as a youth, he split his time between his mother's home at Helgafetl and his father-in-law's farm at uh, Seilingsdalstunga. Oh, and you said uh, he was elegant. Yeah, he's got fair hair that falls uh-huh. in waves around his shoulders. He's fair-complexioned mm-hmm. with a bent nose that's somewhat upturned at the end. He's got handsome, piercing blue eyes and a wide forehead with full cheeks. He's well-built, John, especially in the shoulders and chest. His arms are strong and his hands are well-formed. In fact, I must say in conclusion that, quote, no other man have I ever seen so valiant-looking in all respects. Now, call me crazy, but that sounds a lot like Butley Butlison to me. It is. It is. Yeah, and that was the uh, clever shepherd's description of him. Uh, and just when we thought we were out, Botley pulls us back in. That's right, John. Uh, as you knew long before we started recording, this saga short is all about Gudrun's favorite son and Snorri Gothi's beloved son-in-law and heir, the one and only Botley Botlason. Indeed. Uh, uh, Botlasoner, the short story appended to most, but not all, extant manuscript copies of Laxdala Saga. Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I think there's something like 90 surviving copies of the saga. Uh, only Njal Saga has more uh, surviving manuscript copies. I mean, there's a um, lot more copies than that, Andy. I've been to bookstores. They're available everywhere. <laughs> manuscripts. Manuscripts. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Manuscripts. Individualized manuscripts. Um, now, I'm not sure how many of those 90 surviving manuscripts include Botley Stouter, uh, but it does seem to be most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not a terribly long story, but it's definitely longer than most of the Thatir that we have read so far for our saga shorts. Yeah, uh, so far the tale of Thorsten Bullsleg is the longest one we've done. That one came in at, what, seven and a quarter decicels around there. Yeah, and, and for those who don't remember, a desikel, I mean, I don't know how you would forget this, uh, but a desikel is a tenth of a hrofenkel. <laughs> right. 
It's a widely recognized scientific unit of measurement for Thatter. Yes, requiring only the best and most finely tuned instruments. Like a copy of Hrovgil Saga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Andy, you mentioned that Botley's tale felt a little long to you. So yeah. how do you think it stacks up to that 7.22 decibels? Well, um, given that we read Thorstein Bullleg, uh like five years ago, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> I'm going to say with confidence that I have no idea. Um, but I do at least have a rough sense of a Hrovenkettel. So if the question so, is if I so, can put it all together. Yeah, you can do some quick Andy math in your head and just yeah. break that down to a decicel and boom, you got your prediction. Yeah, well, it's not that easy, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but okay. Uh, now, just thinking about the number of pages and chapters in this story, there's 10 chapters, I forget how many pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would guess that Boltley Stouter is about half of a Hrafenkettel. So I'm going to be broad here doing no math and say that it's four to six decicels long, probably closer to mm-hmm. six if I had to really be pressed. Do we want to be more precise or are you good with that? Not really, but if you want, I'll split the difference and be safe. Let's go with five decicels. How's that for you? All right. That's a wise move. Uh, I think it's a, a good guess. Uh after Botlesonar weighs in at 5.46 decicels. Well, there you go. Well, I'm, I'm very excited by all very of this precise, information. Very precise around here. Yeah, I'm very excited by all of this information. Yeah, that's useful information. Is it useful for, for who? For the people, Andy. It's information for people. I see. Well, now, uh, there's not a whole lot we need to say about this tale to set it up for our dear listeners, but we should say a few words about the date, uh, the setting, and the characters of this text. Sure. So, as everyone listening surely already knows, Lax Style Saga was likely written in the late 13th century. Well, it's generally dated to around 1245, so it's not that late. Well, mid mid to late 13th century, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> Good now, cover. The Thouter was likely written long after Lachstyla Saga, uh, mm-hmm. though the exact date is hard to determine, uh, and scholars, you know, don't really know. But uh, I tried to look around, John. There's honestly not a lot written about Boatley Boatlison's tale at all. Um, mm-hmm. I looked all over for some scholarship on the Thouter, and I came up mostly empty, I have to admit. I did spend I mean, time not, on it, though. Yeah, it's not shocking, but, I mean, it's a it's a welcome invitation to the young saga scholars out there looking for some fresh earth to till. Oh, well. Till away, young saga scholars. <laughs> uh, now, those who have written about it typically comment on minor interesting details, but mostly they reference it only to say that it is usually appended to Lachstyle Saga and that it is much later and generally unreliable as a source of history. Again, not surprising. Yeah, but uh, our good friend Jonas Christiansen uh, has this to say about the text. Some later reader took up his pen and composed an independent thouter to tack on to the end of the saga. In this Botla thouter, Botli is associated with a number of other people, most of them new in the story, mere ciphers, the lot of them, a collection of goodies and baddies. The whole piece is pure invention, and artistically much inferior to Lachstyle Saga. This is editorializing, <laughs> rank editorializing. Whether it's artistically much inferior to Lachstyle Saga is for us to decide. Yes, and we will. Um, we do have some okay. more stuff to cover, but we can, uh, you know, dive into and review the plot of Boltley's tale and uh, then discuss how we feel about it at the end of the episode. Does that sound All good? Right, I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. When one saga ends, a thouter begins. 
All right. So we're still setting this thing up, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. We're not going to dive right into the story itself just yet. So you lied. <laughs> I didn't lie. I said earlier that we need to talk about the setting and, you know, a couple other things before we I dive mean, in. But you uh, just said, let's dive in. Well, we're diving into the very beginning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this tale begins as if it, it as if it's part of a regular narrative, part of part of Lockstone mm -hmm. Saga proper. Right. Picking it up exactly where the saga leaves off. Yeah. So, John, here's the first line uh, for the listeners so that they can all get a sense of what I mean. It reads like this. At the same time as Botle Botlesen lived at Tunga, as was spoken of earlier, a man mm. called Arnor Kronsnose, the son of Bjarni Thordarsen of Hovthi, lived on the farm Miklabær and Skagifjord. Yeah, I mean, this isn't super unusual for a Thauder, uh, particularly those that are incorporated into collections, like Fatir book. But like you said, this, this one is linked very closely to Lakstala Saga specifically, almost as if it's a continuation and not an appended story. Mm-hmm. It opens like any new section of a saga might, right? By creating a link to what was established previously, right? As was spoken of earlier. Yeah. And then introducing the setting and a new cast of characters who will play a role in this next episode of the hero's life. Yeah, that's right. The uh, The final chapter of Lakstala Saga opens with the death of Snorri Gothi, and it mm -hmm. establishes there that Botli and Thordis uh, took over his farm at Seilingstalstunga. So that's what the opening is referring to when it says, as was spoken of earlier. It's just looking back to the beginning of the previous chapter. Right, and then we get the introduction of a new figure, Arnor Crone's Nose, mm -hmm. uh, who will be Botley's main ally in the tale, and who is actually a figure with some pedigree of his own. Right, He appears in several sagas, uh, a, a few of which we haven't gotten to yet, so we'll be seeing more of Arnor in the future. And, and you can tell from the way that the narrative plays out that there might have been a grander plan to keep going here with maybe a full saga of Botley Botlison. But, uh, you know, we can discuss the merits of that plan once we've gone over the plot as it is. <laughs> I'm reminded of a friend of mine who wrote a thesis on book two of the Fairy Queen. Yeah. Uh, and who liked to uh, throw around the quote, none ever wished it longer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so this is either meant to be a saga kernel of its own, or it could be an attempt to create a more satisfying conclusion to Lockstall's saga that shifts the focus uh, back to Botley. Uh, rather than keeping it on Gudrun, which is where uh, the saga leaves off. Yeah, that, I think that's really fair. The other thing the opening line does, and I think this is interesting, is establish a shift in the location. It moves the story northward to, initially to the area of Hjaltadalr, uh, which is in the north. And if you have a sense of where Holar is, then you'll know the general region that we're going to start right, out the, in. The Episcopal Sea of Northern Iceland. Well, I'm sure most everyone is already familiar with the geography of Icelandic Catholicism, John. So, you know, <laughs> no need to cover that. So uh -huh. as the opening... Self-evident, really. Yeah. So as the opening states, Arnor Kronsnos lives at Miklaber, which is a large farm to the northwest of Holtlar. In fact, if you're ever driving along Siglifjarðarvegur on your way to the land of Iceland's hit TV show Trapped... Well, you'll pass most of the farms in this section of the story because they're all in a row there once you pass the road to Holar. Mm -hmm. So just as the road bends to the left and back towards Skagafjord, you're going to be heading north and you'll see Miklaber right there as one of the first big farms on the right. And that is followed by Thuvur and then Marbeli, uh, which is a little further up the road. 
Uh, this is away your Lonely Planet guide and just uh, talk. No, you know how I do. I'm on I'm on Google Maps. I'm on the Saga Map. Dot, uh, uh-huh. the, the, you know, I'm on all those things. Um, and also, yeah. uh, Map Carta I find very useful for the names of oh. of Icelandic farms. Um, if you uh, are looking for this and you want a quick point of reference, the Vintage Auto Museum of Skagafjord is uh, right there, right between both Thuvur and uh, and Miklaber. So there you go. Right. So. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but is this uh this is an area people can see if they're traveling the ring road? Yes. Uh, not not quite. It's not far, but it's not quite. Oh, okay. uh, it's not on the okay. traditional ring road. You have to take Route 76 with it, which is called uh, Siglifjordarvegur, uh, or the road to Siglifjordar, uh, if you want to drive by these farms. But uh, you don't need to go all the way up to Siglifjordar if you want to see these. You can just go up to to Marbeli and then turn around. Mm-hmm. But uh, I highly recommend you do the full drive because it's absolutely stunning it's an amazing drive along the coast and up into the mountains and you'll see uh Greter's island drangi in the distance um and plus mm-hmm. i gotta tell you siglifjordr it's a nice place to visit and if you do there's a great brewery called uh seagull 67 if you're there stop by grab a beer oh yeah yeah uh excellent uh okay so let's uh let's drag it back on topic here uh we've got okay. rnr crone's nose at Miklaber, uh yes. and you mentioned two other farms that are important for the start of our narrative. Yeah, sorry. The The openings of these stories are always densely packed with information, especially places and people, right? So let's follow the road and see who lives where, right? So about half a mile up the road from Miklaber, you'll find a farm called Thuver. And this is the home of a man called Thorolf Stuckup. He's said to be <laughs> a rather unfriendly sort. I mean, the nickname suggests. Right. Uh, it's a bit of a... It's a bit on the crone's nose, but uh, but yeah. Hey. Now, he's known for being uncontrollable when angry, and he is married to Arnor's kinswoman. So there's mm-hmm. a connection here, and thus their farms are close right. together. Yeah, and he's also a, a thingman of Thorth and Thorvald uh, Hjaltason, like mm-hmm. two of the more powerful chieftains in northwestern Iceland in this generation. That's right. Uh, the valley Hjeltadal is actually named after their father, Hjelti Thorderson, who settled there. And uh, and he actually features in Gretir's saga just briefly mm-hmm. uh, when Gretir's living on Drange. Um, but yeah, they live at Holf, which is a farm that is just to the southeast of Holar. Yeah, uh, the Hjeltasins actually came up in Lokstala saga as well, but it was just a passing reference. Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, way back in the early or late 20s, uh, chapter-wise... Uh, we're told about Olaf Peacock's great funeral feast in honor of his father, Halskull. That's right. Yeah, the feast that uh, Olaf arranged himself, despite his half-brothers Thorlek and Barth not being fully on board. Right, right. And the saga mentions there were over a thousand guests at this party, uh, making it the second largest feast ever held in Iceland. Right. And we, we pointed out why the second largest. Who had the largest? Right. Yeah, it was an odd detail for the saga to, to 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 divert off to at the time. Yeah, the largest feast ever held in Iceland, according to this saga author sources, uh, was held by the Hjaltasins in memory of their father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe there was supposed to be something like fourteen hundred people at that funeral feast. Yeah, say a reasonable percentage of the population of Iceland. <laughs> exactly, it's pretty ridiculous how many people are supposed to be there. Uh, but this, I think, is one of the keys to this tale of Botli Botlason. If there is a key to this story and its inclusion in Lockstar mm-hmm. Saga, but uh, I guess more on that later. We've got one more farm and family to introduce before we can get the plot rolling. Uh, so just a little over a mile up the road from Thuver, uh, where Thorolf Stuckup lives, there's a farm called Marbeli. And this is the home of a man called Thorth and his wife Gudrun. 
Another good one. Yeah. And she's actually, rather conveniently, related to Boltley Boltlison. Of course she is. <laughs> the name kind of gives it away. Yeah. So according to the saga, she is the daughter of Boltley's aunt, though it doesn't really indicate which aunt or on which side of Boltley's parentage. One assumes it's on Gudrun's side, but uh, yeah, it was frustrating to me because I was trying to build the genealogy as I was reading this this uh, Thouter, mm-hmm. and it didn't really work because it's all just a little too broad. <laughs> well, I mean, the vagueness of all of it does highlight the lateness of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a pure invention on the part of the author. Yeah, well, I mean, what did Christensen say about the characters? They're, they're mere ciphers. Oh. Yeah, what, what, I mean, you read this out. Uh, ciphers the lot of them. Ciphers the lot of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, Gutherin uh, provides a sort of vaguely defined but necessary familial connection that allows the author to pull Butley Butlison into this northern tale. Okay, right. So, I think now we've got all of our major players in place. Well, almost. Don't forget little Olaf. Ah, little Olaf. Yes, that's right. Uh, Thorth and Gudrun have a young son called Olaf, and he's he's about seven years old. Cute little guy. And here again, the name is intended to link this family to the major players in Luxdala Saga. Exactly. Right. So now, John, we've got the geography, and we've got the cast of characters. So let's raise the curtain and allow our story to unfold. <laughs> As I speak in my plummiest voice, <laughs> rolling had, my eyes. I also had my, my hand up declaiming, and <laughs> the curtain right. rises. Part one, a vile and unmanly deed. Our story begins, as most of them do, with a conflict. You don't say. Thorolf, <laughs> yes. Thorolf Stuckup isn't just a bully. He's got a bully of a bull who's got a tendency to wander and stir up trouble on neighboring farms, mm-hmm. especially at Thorth's farm at Marbiley. Now, this bull is known for tearing up haystacks, wounding farm animals, and, well, just charging at anyone who tries to chase him off. Yep, yeah, uh, he really goes bull throttle when he's trying to nope, catch up. Nope, with, let, nope, let's nope. not start that, John. Okay, uh, but really, uh, do you know how the workers of uh, Marbiley could stop the bull from charging? Please, John. Take away his credit card. Are you done? Uh, yes. <laughs> Going back okay. to the story. Uh, do okay. you know why Thorolf's bull likes to cause problems at Marbelli? I, I don't like that you started that with do you know. <laughs> well, he's got why, beef. John? <laughs> God damn you, John. All right. I hope the next time that you sit down at a public latrine, a devil comes up out of the hole next to you and drags you down to hell where you belong for that. <laughs> That's what I... Sorry. What what public latrines are you going to that still have holes in the floor? <laughs> Good question. All right, well, so tell us tell us more about this obnoxious bull. Well, uh, this, Thorth This decides, abominable figure. So Thorth decides to do the neighborly thing, and mm-hmm. he asks Thorolf Stuckup to do a better job of minding his bull. Mm-hmm. But like many a bad neighbor with an unruly animal, Thorolf simply refuses to do anything about the problem. And soon enough... The bull is back at Thorth's farm tearing up a stack of peat, which I presume is drying out for use as fuel. Yeah. And Thorth spots this bull, grabs his spear, and rushes out to chase it away. But then the bull starts to come at him, and Thorth lunges forward with his spear and kills it right there. And then he walks, doing the responsible thing, walks over to Thorolf's farm, and tells him what happened. 
ironically, uh, both squashing the beef and creating beef at the same time. Okay. Uh, no. All right. <laughs> I'm glad the bull's dead so that we uh, can put, put an end to that. Yep. Yep. Um, it was a noble act. Uh, as you... Now, as you might expect, uh, Thorolf is not thrilled about the loss of his prize bull. Uh, right. He tells Thor that he has done a dishonorable deed, then threatens him. I should like to treat you to something just as unpleasant. Hmm. Now, first of all, Thor warned him to do a better job of watching the bull, right? So given the bull's behavior, I feel like what happened isn't terribly surprising. Mm-hmm. Second of all, Thorolf isn't just stuck up. He's a real asshole. Well, let's talk about that nickname for a moment. I mean, stuck up, not the other one you just gave him. Right. Excellent. Okay. I, I was hoping you could shed some light on it. Does uh, stuck up match the sense in the Icelandic? I, I think so. Yes. Uh, the nickname is uh, Stertemadr. Uh, so he's known as a man who is Sterter, uh, which okay. according to Kluzdivikvisen, this term is associated with dressing in a stately or haughty fashion. Well, uh, it probably comes from the verb sterta, which means uh, to pleat or to stiffen, uh, that kind of thing, right? To, to crease something, mm-hmm. you know, to, to give something a, a sharp edge. To put uh, some effort into your clothes for once. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's also the term applied to Siam and Hravenkel saga when he's strutting about at the thing after his victory over Hravenkel. Hmm. So, so the term is about more than just how one dresses. It's... It's about how you bear yourself, right? It's a haughty okay. and proud and stately bearing. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's often associated with being stuck up, obviously. But uh, but I think, you know, now that you say that, I think Thorolf the Haughty would capture the arrogance and contemptuousness of his character a little bit better. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I mean, stuck up works. It makes Thorolf's character immediately clear to the audience. Uh, but haughty or maybe something like the unbending or the stiff would maybe work mm-hmm. better here. Unbending, yeah, I, I like that too. Especially given that he's asked to do something reasonable, and then right. he doesn't, right? Right. Uh, now, we mentioned earlier that Thor of Marbelli and Gudrun have a son named Olaf, and he's said to be around seven or eight years old. Now, given where we left Thor and Thorolf, John, I don't like where this is heading. Why are you introducing this boy? It's not great. Uh, remember, this is this poor boy named after Olaf Peacock, right? Certainly got a yeah. bright future ahead of him, right? Uh, but shortly after killing Thorolf's bull, Thor had to leave his farm on business. And one day while daddy is gone, young Olaf is out playing a good distance from the farmhouse. He's, he's building himself a little playhouse of his own, uh, presumably out of some of that turf, although mm-hmm. maybe out of hay or peat as well. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting little detail here about mm-hmm. how children might have played in medieval Iceland. I really like it. It's not too different from any other time period, honestly, because what kid doesn't like to build a little fort for himself or a little house? But uh, I like the inclusion of this detail that helps to heighten the the innocence of of young Olaf. It's Mm -hmm. it's cool. Well, and while the young and innocent Olaf busies himself with building his little fort, Thorolf appears and stabs the boy to death with his spear. Yeah. It's a it's just another one of those shocking moments where mm-hmm. a child gets murdered in the text by an unruly brute of a man. Yeah. And it, it highlights just how terrible and awful Thorolf is as a person. Exactly. Uh, and by the way, it isn't just us who thinks this. Uh, when Thorolf returns home to tell his wife what he's done, she tells him, this is a vile and unmanly deed and you'll reap an ill reward. Well, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, now, Thorolf. Thorolf, again, as you said earlier, right, this is about good guys and bad guys, right? There isn't a lot of yeah. nuance here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Thorolf 
suddenly realizes that killing young Olaf maybe doesn't uh, balance out so well with the killing of an aggressive bull. Yeah. Uh, he's going to need some help and some protection. <laughs> His first call is to Arnor Kronsnose at Miklaberg. Remember that Thorolf is actually married to a relation of Arnor's. Uh, he's hoping that this familial connection will earn him the support he's going to need to weather the storm that he's created by his actions. Yeah, but when Arnor hears what Thorolf did to young Olaf, he refuses any help at all. Yeah, no, he, he says, I don't value my connections with you more highly than my own honor. <laughs> is that a crone's nose or is that just a stuffed up nose? That's just a stuffed nose. Uh <laughs> <laughs> He says, I don't value my connections with you more highly than my own honor. You'll find no support or protection from me. Good man, Arnor. Yeah, you think uh, uh, it would be a good idea at this point for Thorolf maybe to stop leading off with, oh, by the way, I stabbed a kid to death. <laughs> it's uh, not a good look. Yeah, no, so Thorolf now has to ride off in search of the Hjaltasins at Hof, uh, hoping mm-hmm. that maybe they might be willing to overlook the horrific crime he's committed and offer him some kind of support. Uh, he finds both brothers, uh, Thor and Thorvald, at home and explains the situation to them. But they also give him a cold response. They refuse to get involved in the matter. Yeah. Uh, he really is talking to Thor at this point, which is important mm-hmm. uh, going forward. Yeah, but, Thorvald remains silent, but doesn't yeah. offer help or criticism. That's right. But but it's it's starting to look pretty grim for Thorolf, which, to be frank, eh, that's great. Couldn't Screw happen him. to a nicer guy. Yeah. Uh, and with no help available from anyone in the valley, uh, he rides up along to a hot spring where he takes a moment to bathe and collect his thoughts. Well, that's uh, an interesting thing to do after killing a child. I mean, <laughs> he probably should have bathed maybe before he left. Uh, now, in the evening, he rides back down into the same valley and toward the Hjaltasen's farm. Hmm. As he approaches the fence surrounding the property, he begins speaking to himself. Uh, as if he's rehearsing a conversation. Yeah. It's an odd moment, but a very human one, right? He's understandably stressed, and he's full of conflicting emotions. So, yeah, talk to himself. I'm not sure that's what's going on, but let's let's explain what's happening. So, in this conversation oh. with this imagined man, Thorolf mm-hmm. identifies himself and explains the situation once more. He mentions that he's asked the Hjaltasens for help, but was refused. And to this... The imagined man says, The Hjaltasens hosted 1,200 at a table to honor their father. Such leaders have surely fallen in stature if they won't now offer a single man protection. Now, this is a reference to the funeral feast that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the one mentioned earlier in Laxdala Saga as the largest uh, feast in Icelandic history. But I think we said that the number was 1,400, which is what Laxdala Saga says. Yeah, I'd have to like, go back different. and look at that again, but maybe somebody can correct us on that. But I, I no, believe it, it does say that. It's definitely 1,400. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of those things. I mean, as we said earlier, this, this story has uh, a somewhat unmoored relationship to reality. <laughs> Well, at the very least, this author could have looked back a few pages and seen what number it was. Well, I mean, you would think. Continuity Uh, and all. (laughs) Well, regardless of numbers, uh, it's fortunate for Thorolf that uh, Thorvald Hjaltasen is standing outside the farmhouse at the time that he's speaking. He overhears the conversation uh, that Thorolf is having with himself and steps out to grab the reins of Thorolf's horse. Tells him to dismount, welcomes him inside and into his protection. But he does add, 
though it's hardly likely to bring much honor to help a man as feckless as you. All right. So, John, here's what I just realized. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think you were indicating that you already knew this when you responded with uh, maybe (laughs) to my Well, I suspect, let's say that. Right. So here's what I think is going on. And I, I figure you already know this, but I just figured it out. He hung out at the hot spring until night fell because he had a plan that required darkness, right? And then once it was dark enough, he rode up to Hof and stopped along the fence line just near enough to the farmhouse so that he could be heard. And then, under cover of darkness, he pretended to have a conversation with someone passing by. And that imagined man was crafted by design to suggest, and loud enough for anybody nearby to hear, that the Hjaltasen's reputation and their honor would suffer if word spread that they rejected the pleas of a man in a bad spot, like... Like this idiot who killed a kid. <laughs> it's it's a I don't like Thorolf, but it is a clever bit of subterfuge and manipulation of the Hjaltasen's sense of honor, and it works. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably close to what's going on here. I mean, I I, I tended to read it less as he's pretending to have an actual conversation, and more he's performing the kind of conversations that can be anticipated in the future if he's turned away. But yeah, I think the the but, result is the same. So are you saying that in, in, in your reading of it, he's not doing it on purpose to be heard, to manipulate Oh, no, them? no. I think he absolutely he's doing it to be heard. I think it is performative, absolutely. Uh, but I don't think I don't think he means for Thorvald to think there's a second guy standing there talking to him so ah. much as this is what this is going to sound like to others when I explain being turned away by you. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I... Either way, I think it's pretty close either way. Yeah, I guess it depends on whether it's dark or not and what time of year right. this is. Right, because um, if it's yeah. if it's any time up to, I don't know, August, late August, there's not a whole lot of darkness. That's true, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, regardless of how many people uh, Thorvald thinks are there, uh, this works like a charm. Uh, mm-hmm. Neither of the Hjaltasens, and it's uh, Thorvald and Thor, want to help Thorolf, but they can't have people saying that they're unwilling or afraid to take on difficult cases. Yes, this is the game of honor. Yeah, which often involves this kind of thing where you're sort of left with an option among bad choices. There isn't really a good choice. So, like it or not, the despicable Thorolf Stuckup now has the support of the most powerful men in the valley. If only there was someone available to Thor than Gudrun to come in and help them get justice for young Olaf. Part 2. Butley Butlison goes north. Now, obviously, this whole scenario, this whole inciting incident is designed Ooh. to draw Butley Butlison north. Yes, and it does. When Thor the Marbelli arrives home to discover that his son has been killed, well, first of all, he's devastated. But since some time has passed since the killing, his wife Gudrun urges haste. Thor must ride out and declare Thorolf legally responsible for the unjust slaying of their son. Mm. Meanwhile, she will ride south to Tunga to see if her kinsman Butley is willing to come to their aid. Okay, now, anytime a character is traveling, I assume you've looked up the distance. Mm. So, what kind of journey does Gudrun have ahead of her? You assume correctly in this case, John. <laughs> so, let me look at my notes here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, by car, on modern roads, more or less, given it's Iceland and not all the right. roads are modern, 
It's around 137 miles or 220 kilometers. Mm-hmm. That would take around two and a half hours in a car. So for Gudrun, who's going to be traveling by horse over a terrain that's a bit more difficult than our modern roads, it's going to take considerably longer than two and a half hours to get from Marbelli to Tunga. Yeah. So if she sets a reasonable pace of, let's say, six to seven kilometers per hour on an average Icelandic horse, which is roughly the speed that they'll go, Mm -hmm. it would be around 30 to 35 hours of travel, not counting any stops, right? So I'm guessing Gudrun is looking at a three-day trip, maybe four, depending on how many stops she makes. Okay, now I assumed you'd work this out, but that's way more specific than I was hoping for. I mean, you wonder what I spend my time on. (laughs) Right. Now, honestly, if math classes were tied to more interesting word problems like this in my youth, who knows what I could have accomplished? Right. If they'd asked you to calculate the travel distance of a tolting horse, you'd have been been a whiz. Across difficult terrain in Iceland. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, given that usually the math you're willing to do doesn't stretch beyond simple division, I'm guessing there would have been a a fairly low ceiling for those accomplishments. (laughs) You're probably right. By math uh, skills, they're so, not that great. So does Gudrun make it? Does she get to Botley? Does he jump at the chance to ride north and save the day? Hmm. Well, yes, yes, and no. Ah. She she's <laughs> she arrives. She's given a warm reception at Tunga. But Botley is he's actually hesitant to get involved at first. He mm-hmm. says It doesn't look to me as if it will be easy to obtain honorable redress from those northerners. What's more, I've heard that Thorolf is now keeping himself where it will not be easy to search him out. From those northerners. Yeah. Emphasis. Mm-hmm. Do I uh, sense a bit of authorial agenda here? Yeah, I think you do. Um, if this little tale does anything, it seems to at least preserve a degree of animosity and suspicion concerning the people of the north among the, quote, more civilized people of the west. <clears throat> yeah, more civilized, sure. As if all the stories aren't about ridiculous feuds and difficult people and unnecessary murders. Independent people, John. There you go. But yes, we just spent a year and some change talking about all of those arguments and killings Mm -hmm. and feuds, often grounded in very petty notions of honor. Uh I mean, this is the child of... Botley and Gudrun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, whatever the case, I think that whoever wrote this addition to the saga wants to make it very clear that there's something a bit wild, a bit unruly, and dare I say, immoral about the North. Ah, okay, right. So, Thorolf and his bull introduce us to life in the North and the kinds of people that live and thrive there. Mm-hmm. And then we see Thor and Thorvald Hjaltason bringing him in and offering him protection despite the egregious nature of Thorolf's crime. Yeah, which I guess makes them just as bad, if not worse in some ways, because Mm -hmm. they're willing to shelter and protect a dishonorable man like Thorolf. And Boltley appears to be keenly aware of just how difficult things can be up north. It's a difficult place to live. It's a difficult place to go. It's a difficult place to get justice. And that's why he's reluctant to get involved at first. Yeah, at first, which suggests that he does get involved. Well, I mean, it is Boltley Boltlison's Thouter, not right. Thorolf or the Haltisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, he eventually agrees to take the case, and he promises to ride north and prosecute Thorolf at the Hegrenes Assembly when spring arrives. And so, with Boltley's assurance, Gudrun is able to ride home and report everything to her husband, Thorth, and then things are relatively quiet on all fronts throughout the winter. Relatively quiet, yes. 
at some point after Christmas time, Thorvald Helteson manages to move Thorolf to an underground safe house for outlaws at Guthdaler. Uh, it's owned by a man named Stari. Uh, it's for a fee, of course. Of course, yeah. I, I love that Stari has a, an outlaw shelter available. Well, it speaks to Stauri's own independent character. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, there's there's actually a quick reference to the fact that Stauri himself has some outla- outstanding uh, legal judgments against him. Yes, he does. Uh, so it might speak to that independent and wild characterization of the North that's in this story. And honestly, in other stories as well. This is not Absolutely. just an agenda by this author. Right. Uh, the North it... is a place for outlaws to hide. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... This isn't too far away from where uh, Grettir, the most famous of Iceland's outlaws, it's not too far away from where he spends a great deal of time in the latter half of his saga. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, if you look back at the map and go driving, like I said, along Siglifjordarvegur, uh, uh, like we talked about earlier, there's Grettir's island known as Drange, uh, which mm-hmm. features very prominently in the middle of uh, Skagafjordr. Very beautiful. Yeah, getting getting out to Drange is definitely on my bucket list. Yeah, mine too. Um, and there's definitely a tour that you can do out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so as for Thorolf being hidden away in an outlaw shelter that's underground, I think it's important to note here that Thorolf isn't an outlaw, at least not yet. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that Thorvald knows it's better to keep him uh, far out of sight. Yeah, well, and far away from his own farm at Hof. Yeah, that's smart. Right. Uh, I mean, this is uh, this guy's a hot potato. Nobody mm-hmm. really wants to hang on to him for very long. Yeah, uh, it's because it's important to note that Stowery, who isn't a glowing figure of social propriety himself, expresses frustration with being stuck with hiding a man like Thorold. Yes, he actually says much the same thing as Thorvald had said earlier uh, that helping a man like Thorolf is unlikely to bring much luck. But he agrees to hide Thorolf in his outlaw shelter. Yeah. So, with Thorolf neatly tucked away in his hidey hole, time passes and spring eventually arrives. And as the Hegrenes thing approaches, Botli Bolison rides north to Skagafjord with a, a band of 30 men. So, he knows he's going into dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. And before he gets there, he makes one quick stop at a farm to make some further preparations. Well, I mean, the obvious choice would be to stop at Marbelli and see Gudrun and Thor. Perhaps, but that is not mentioned. Uh, perhaps mm-hmm. he did. But what is mentioned is a stop at Miklaber, where he speaks with Arnor Kronsnos. You see, Boltley knows that a band of 30 men is maybe not enough to contend with whatever the Heltesons might have planned. Right, and we don't just mean an ambush here, right? Um, medieval Icelandic court cases can, they can get a little physical sometimes. Yes, yes they can. Uh, although often not the case themselves, more like the effort to get to the case in time to prosecute mm-hmm. or defend it. Uh, that part can be dangerous sometimes. So Boltley asks Arnor for some help, should the situation call for it. Right, Arnor agrees that Boltley should be prepared for something a little uh, a little extracurricular from the Heltesons. Right. Uh, he says, I don't think you're heading for fair sailing. I start over. He says, I don't think you're heading for fair sailing, Butley, if you intend to prosecute a case here in the North. Not against men as unjust as the ones involved here. Yeah, there's that anti-Northern sentiment again. Even right. Arnor feels it. Right, in the in the mouth of a Northerner, right? Yeah. Uh, at least an anti-Heltesen sentiment, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and Arnor seems game to fight back against the kind of injustice and corruption being practiced by the most powerful chieftains in the region. Yeah. He gathers up a large force of his own and accompanies Butley to the thing. Now, of course, the Heltesons also show up with a huge force, and sure enough, they attempt to block Boltley's prosecution through intimidation by simply having more men and more weapons than Boltley appears to have. 
Right, but they don't anticipate that Arnor has Botley's back. Remember that right. uh, it wasn't that long ago that Thorolf was actually going to Arnor for help. Uh, so when Th- Arnor sees the Hultasins approaching Botley with their band of followers, he and his men rush in between them. And he says, It's clear that so many good men should not be involved in the dispute as now appears likely, so that people fail to get the justice they deserve. It is a mistake for you two to support Thorolf in this case, Thorvald. And you will find that you have scant backing if it comes to a show of force today. Now, this warning from the uh, stuffed-up nose, <laughs> the Arnor Crone's nose. Crone uh, nose, Crone nose. It, it proves to be all that is needed to get the Hjaltasens and Stari to back down from the case. And with them out of the way, it's an easy task for Boltley to have Thorolf Stuckup declared a full outlaw. Mm-hmm. So having won a fairly easy victory, Boltley thanks Arnor for his help, and then returns back home in the West to his farm at Seilingsdalstunga. Job done. Right, Justice is served. Botley and Arnor save the day. The end. Well, not exactly, as you know. Sometime yeah. later, Thorvald and Stari travel west to Hrutafjord, and they make some travel arrangements for, Thor- for Thorolf stuck up the outlaw now with a ship's captain mm-hmm. named Thorgrim. Yeah, the captain isn't thrilled about it, uh, noting, once again that Thorolf appears to be an unlucky sort of man. There's sort of a formula to these exchanges. Yeah. Uh, And he agrees to take Thorolf on board when the time comes for the same three-mark bribe that everybody else has been using to move this guy along. Uh, And with that, Thorolf is no longer the problem of Stauri and Thorvald. Good for them. (laughs) They really got rid of that problem problem. as as easily as they could. Now, to be fair, Hrutafjord isn't that far from Boatley's farm at Tunga. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, rumor quickly spreads in that direction about Thorgrim promising to take Thorolf abroad. And while he did get a sort of justice for Olaf by sentencing Thorolf to outlawry, the thought of this child killer getting away to a new life overseas, it just doesn't sit well with him. And so he quickly makes preparations, straps on his helmet and grabs himself a handy spear and buckles on the famous sword Legbiter. And then he rides over to Hrutafjord and finds Thorolf among the merchants. Uh, he arrives just as the merchants are making final preparations to leave. And that's when he sees Thorolf walking out of the camp, carrying his bedroll. Boltley immediately rushes towards him, drawing Legbiter as he approaches. And before Thorolf realizes what's happening, Legbiter has sliced through his vital organs, and he's falling backwards as the world goes dark. Okay, when are we going to convince Boltley to use a sword called Legbiter for its intended purpose? <laughs> he keeps getting people in the trunk, in the yeah. abdomen, in the chest. Sweep the leg, Boltley. Come on. Seriously. Uh, all right. Well, the merchants spot this, and they're understandably upset, uh, right? This is this is not the done thing. Uh, but because they don't know who this man is or why he would kill a person that they have under their protection, they move to seize Boltley before he can ride away. But... Botley jumps back on his horse and suggests that any attempt to stop him might lead to a few more deaths before they're done. Mm-hmm. And Thorgrim, who's a, a reasonable sort, uh, acknowledges the wisdom of this and allows <laughs> Botley to leave freely. That's right. Yeah, and, and men throughout the region marvel at the news. According to the author, they think that it's quite an accomplishment for Botley to have come into a foreign district and to get a man who's under the protection of powerful chieftains like the Heltesons outlawed. Mm-hmm. And then, after that, to risk life and limb by riding alone into the camp of his protectors, albeit a bunch of merchants, and killing him there. It's a, it's a big score for Botley, 
and his honor and reputation increase as a result. Yeah. And while it might make sense for the tale to end there, and it really would, it's really just getting started. Part 3. How to Make Friends and Influence People Oh, it's a little self-help guide for yeah, Icelanders. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Specifically well, that, for 11th century Icelanders. Yes. 11th century Icelanders. Well, well, it's a tale that's written in the 14th century, so I guess it could apply anytime. <laughs> so now that Boltley's made a name for himself among the men of the North, well, he's approached at the Althing that year by none other than Guðmund the Powerful. Yeah, no, we've, we've encountered Guðmund the Powerful many times in the course of our journey through the sagas. Uh, and we will continue to run into him as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, he was in Njal Saga and Greta's Saga, the Saga of Aelhood, uh, Lockstall Saga. Uh, he's also in Killergloom Saga. And he's one of the chief protagonists of Losvetninga Saga, which we'll be getting to hopefully in the next year. Right. Yeah. And if there's a single feature that looms large over the northern region throughout the sagas, it's Gudmund Indriki. He's the kind of friend that everyone hopes to have and the kind of enemy that everyone fears. Right, and fortunately for Butley, uh, Guthmund is suddenly very interested in becoming friends. Uh, mm-hmm. Guthmund says, I want to say, Butley, you're the kind of man I'd like to count among my friends. Mm-hmm. Why don't you come up north for a fortnight feast soon? And please understand that I'll be disappointed if you fail to accept. Well, first of all, a fortnight feast sounds rather expensive. I mean... Sounds the kind of thing that Thorall stuck up might have done. Yeah. So, uh, with a full understanding of the political importance of this invitation, mm-hmm. Boltley graciously accepts. And Goodwin isn't the only powerful man offering his friendship and invitations to Boltley at this all thing. He also receives an invitation from our old friend Arnor Kronesnose, who proved to be a man of influence in the case against Thorolf, mm-hmm. to feast with him at uh, Miklebear. And then there's invitations from a man called Thorsten, the son of Helunarfi, uh, mm-hmm. and another from Thor of Marbelli. Uh, it's the husband of Butli's kinswoman, Gudrun, and the father of Olaf. Yeah, that is a lot of obligations to mm-hmm. accept. But each of these men are seeking to solidify their social and political bonds to Butli uh, as an up-and-comer in uh, the Icelandic social and political game, right? Yeah. And Boltley, in turn, appreciates the opportunity to capitalize on his recent success and maximize the potential value of expanding his influence into the North. Right. And so this this rapidly growing list of visits he's obligated to make will also help to set up a roadmap for the rest of this little story. Yeah. Now, by my count, he's so far got four stops that he's promised. Mm -hmm. So I guess going in a sort of geographical order... That's a stop at um, at Thor's farm at Marbelli, and then Arnor's farm at Miklebear. Those two are close together, uh, as we covered in the first section of this episode. Uh, he's going to be coming up and, and hitting Thor first. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to be riding along the modern-day Route 1, uh, which connects Skagafjordr to the region of Eyjafjordr. So uh, those of you who take the ring road, if, you go, if you're heading to Akureyri, uh, you're going to be going this same exact path mm-hmm. that uh, he's going to be traveling. Um, he's heading to Eyjafjordr, where Gudmund the Powerful lives, at Mothraveller, which is just north of the modern and very lovely city of Akureyri. 
Um, and along the way, at some point, he's supposed to stop at Thorstein's place at Hals. I'm not really sure where that is, but it's it's it should be somewhere before he gets to Mothraveller if everything plays out the way that it's supposed to. Um, it should be on the way for Boltley, and he can hit it on the way there or on the way back. Uh, but whatever the case, John, this is a very, very lengthy journey that he's undertaking through a territory that isn't yet wholly known to him or necessarily safe at this point. Right, but he's sort of playing Ali Ali Oxenfree, right? He's going from one friendly farm to another through this hostile territory. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, and that's the fun of this next section. I mean, if we can call it fun, right? It's a there and back again journey full of feasts, encounters, a dash of danger. Well said. Now, sometime after Christmas, Boltley sets out on this northern adventure with a party of 18 men, including 12 well-armed merchants who had been wintering with him at Tunga since the end of summer. Boltley wears a fine black cape and rides with his fancy spear King's Gift in his hand. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that a journey like this one, uh, it's about, it's as much about looking impressive to anyone who might see you on the way as it is about actually doing anything at the destination. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Boltley's got to look his best. And so this first stop on the trip is going to be Thord's farm at Marbelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spend three nights there before riding up the valley to visit Arnor Crone's nose at uh, Miklebert. Right, and Arnor is overjoyed at Butley's arrival. Uh, oh, yeah. He's a bit effusive. He says, You've done well in paying me this visit, Butley. By coming here, you have declared your great friendship with me. It's performative politics, yeah. right? You've got to be seen together so that people know you're tight. And this increases Arnor's standing, but it also helps Butley secure a much-needed ally in the north. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as Arnor quickly points out, not everyone in this district is going to be as uh, well-inclined toward you, Butley. Some of them, especially the Hjaltasens, feel they've been dishonored by your handling of the Thorolf case. And because of this, I intend to follow you north as far as the Heliodal Heath when you depart for Mothervether. Now, Boltley is appreciative of this offer, but he explains that he has no intention of getting into trouble while traveling through the district. That said, he does say that he'll have no difficulty handling any attacks should they come his way. Right, so <laughs> not so much not expecting them as not concerned. Yeah. Uh, now, not far from where Butley and Arnor are reuniting at Miklaber, uh Thorvald and Thor Hjaltason are get huddled together at their farmhouse at Hulf. Uh, they've heard that Butley's returned to the north, and that he plans to ride through the district on his way to Mothervetler. For Thorvald, this is too much to bear, and too great an opportunity to miss. He tells his brother, The idea of Botley passing by under our noses without making any attempt to confront him irks me. I don't know of anyone who has done more to diminish my honor than him. Now, Thor, who is the one who outright rejected Thorolf the Stuck-Up in the mm-hmm. first part of the tale, says, You're a great one for getting more involved in things than I care to, brother. This is a road best left untraveled, if you ask me. <laughs> and then, in a great example of what I would call saga-style Lytotis, he mm-hmm. says, I think it's far from certain that Boatley won't know how to respond to any attack you make. Nice. Uh, But Thorvald presses the issue and eventually has to challenge his brother's manliness. Uh, And at that point, Thor reluctantly agrees to accompany him on the ambush. Uh, Although Thor does say he'll let Thorvald reap the rewards or the consequences of the attack. Mm. He's, He's thoroughly distancing himself from responsibility for what's about to go down. Yes, he is. Now, I have a question here, John. Does any of this sound familiar? You mean the setup 
the, the setup for the attack or for the quote from Thorvald? Uh, just kind of the, the whole setup thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it all reminds me a lot of the lead-in to that ambush on Kjartan. Mm-hmm. Remember, in, in that sequence, there, you know, we had Kjartan visiting a good friend. And then that good friend, uh, well, it was Thorkettle Pup and, uh, and Knut, were riding back with him, accompanying him through the valley as a precaution, as protection. Right, but a precaution that he scoffed at. Not exactly, but sure. Okay, he, he yeah, he might have <coughs> lived if he had allowed Thorkettle Pup and Knut to ride with him all the way through the valley, but he was confident that he could handle the Olsvifsons himself. Yeah, yeah, and how'd that turn out for him? Well, not not so great, but, <laughs> but John, that's only because Boltley and Legbiter got involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't expect that. Now, to be clear... It's not just the circumstances of this ambush that's being set up that mm-hmm. remind me of the Kjartan scene. One ambush, to be honest, looks very much like another in the sagas. But this conversation between, this is where I started to think about it, was the conversation between Thorvald and Thorth feels to me like a condensed version of the Gudrun and the Olsvifsons applying pressure to Boltley to step up and reclaim his honor by dealing with Kjartan. And Boltley, just mm-hmm. like Thorth here, only agrees to go along, but places the responsibility for it all on the heads of the Olsvifsons. I think that's right. right? That parallel has to be deliberate. Uh, It feels like the author of this Thouter is taking advantage of a familiar episode to help set up certain expectations for Boltley's trip through the Heliodar Heath. It's raising the tension a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's effective. So so Thorvald gets busy right away. He gathers a party of 18 men and sets out for his revenge. Okay, 18 men, though. I know. Mm. Well, I mean, and he knows that... Yep. That uh, Boltley has 18 men. Well, maybe, you know, he's only got so many friends. Maybe get more men. Uh, but <laughs> while that's going on, Boltley and Arnor are also mounting up and they're heading out. And with Arnor's help, he's got more than 18 men. And before long, they're approaching the spot where the Hjaltasins are waiting. And Boltley, feeling a surge of Kjartan-esque confidence, turns to Arnor <laughs> and says, You should feel free to turn back now, friend. You've given us a fitting escort, and I trust the Hjaltasins won't try any treachery with me. Uh, yeah, way to read the situation, Botley. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, Arnor is a bit more insistent than Thorkel Pup and Knut were with Kjartan. He refuses to abandon Botley, and even manages to spot the shining shields of the ambushers in the distance. Mm-hmm. You would think at some point people would learn to like smear some mud on their shields before they hide in an ambush. Right? I know, right? They're always constantly signaling to those coming. Uh, now, he, he, this Arnor is going to stick with Botley all the way through the danger zone, whether uh, whether yeah. Botley likes it or not. Yeah, which proves to be the right move. It does, yeah. When Thorvald and Thorth see the size of Botley's entourage, they balk. Uh, Thorvald realizes that any effort to attack will go very poorly for them. Yeah, and Thorth, Thorth looks at all this and he chides his brother saying, Well, things have turned out as I feared. That this journey would make a mockery of us, and that we'd have done better to sit at home. Now we've shown our open hostility to men, and accomplished nothing. Yeah, it's a big L for the Altisons, big goose egg. Yep. Uh, they are forced to return home with their heads hanging in shame. Yes, thanks to Arnor, Boltley makes it onto the heath, and then safely on the road north. He's survived the threat of the Hjaltasen's revenge... And there's nothing standing in his way now. On to Goodman the Powerful. Uh, not exactly. 
No, of course not. Part 4. A Series of Summons is... So things aren't going to be easy for Botley, at, le- at least not yet. Well, I don't think... Yeah. Uh, well, it wouldn't be interesting as a story if it was easy. Sure. And things do get complicated for him pretty quickly. As soon as Botley and his party arrive in Svarfadal, they stop at a farm that's called Scathe, where they notice a store of hay nearby. Mm-hmm. Now, Boltley and his men dismount and take a little bit of the hay, hoping to refresh their horses. It's been a long journey. They're careful to take only a little because Boltley says he isn't sure what sort of man the farmer who owns the property might be. Right. So, so a couple of things here. Uh, first, taking someone else's hay without permission, that's that's a kind of a murky legal area. Uh, yeah. It's important to remember that for what comes next, that, that what Boltley's doing here is, is a little questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the footnote in the Penguin Edition explains, there are old Icelandic laws forbidding that kind of thing. Uh, but then uh, Jón's book, uh, a compilation of laws from 1281, includes stipulations that allow it. Right, if you're if you're on the road and you don't have access to fresh feed for your horses, you can you can do this. So, Botley is risking an accusation of theft by feeding his horses on this unknown farmer's hay. At least in the 11th century, he's doing that. Yeah, yeah, that that's correct. And and he's about to find out exactly what kind of farmer he's taking hay from. Isn't ah, he? right. Yeah, that's the second thing. This farm is owned by a man called Helgi, uh, who's described as follows. He was an ill-tempered man, not of good family, although they were wealthy enough. His wife, Sigrid, who was a kinswoman of Thorsten Helenarfesen, was the more outstanding of the two. Sounds to me like Boltley might be in trouble. Well, it depends. When, when one of the farm workers sees what's going on, he rushes into the farmhouse to report that men are at the haystack feeding their horses. Now, Sigrid, who, remember, is the more outstanding of the two, uh, says, The only ones who would do such a thing are men on whom one shouldn't spare a little hay. Well, she sounds rather smart, a little savvy. Mm -hmm. She understands how things work. But something tells me that Helgi won't be quite so generous. No, no, not not at all. Uh, Helgi jumps to his feet and rushes out like a lunatic to confront his uh, unwelcome guests. I suppose he's not interested in the benefits of being a hospitable host to travelers, especially those who are well-to-do. Right, and it's not his style. Uh, he's more the kind to sort of to stand on his rights. Uh, yes. As he stomps toward the haystack, uh, Botley rises to his feet and supports himself on his spear King's Gift as Helgi raves at him. Who are these thieves who harass me, stealing what is mine, tearing apart my haystack to feed their mounts? Well... I'm Boatley, the son of Boatley. That's an unsuitable name. I suspect <laughs> you're an unjust man. Uh, John, what does he mean that's an unsuitable name? <laughs> Boatley Boltlison. What is... I mean, it's it's an unusual name. I mean, I... You don't see a lot really. of Boatleys in the sagas. I guess not, but uh, unsuitable. All right. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit it's more a, about why. It's a southern name, Andy. Oh, I see. <laughs> Maybe. It's from them city slickers down south. <laughs> right. Well, Boltley has a good sense of what's probably going to happen here. So he says, yes, that that may well be true, but don't worry. You'll have your justice. And then he drives, understanding the problem, right? He drives the horses away from the hay and he tells his men to prepare to leave. I mean, it's a a good gesture, but Helgi is not having it. You're not getting away that easily. 
I declare that what you have taken has been stolen from me, and that's an offense liable to outlawry, I'll have you know. I understand, farmer, I understand. I suppose you'll want us to pay you some compensation for the hay, so you won't prosecute us. That's reasonable, that's fair. I will pay you double the cost of your hay for what we've done. Again, that's actually a fairly reasonable gesture. Very uh, much although, so. there is... There is something of Boltley's class and privilege right behind this offer. I mean, this is uh, yeah a little bit uh, high-handed, given that you've been caught taking hay without asking. I mean, uh, he's just opening up his like wallet and be like, "How, how yeah, much? Yeah, how much to make this go away?" Exactly. Yeah, uh, I've got my gold card right here. Uh, so the the farmer obviously is not swayed, and in fact, maybe a little insulted. He's, that's nowhere near enough to cover the injustice you've done to me. Now, at this point, Boltley wonders aloud if maybe there might be something that he or his men have that the farmer would accept as fair compensation. Well, now that you mention it, there might be something. And his eyes begin to run over the Spear King's gift. Mm. I would accept that gold-inlaid spear you have in your hand there. That seems like a fair compensation. Now, Boltley is a little taken aback by this. Yeah, honestly. well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very expensive handful of hay. It, it sure is. Now, he says, I'm not so sure I care to give up this spear just yet. I had other plans for it. Yeah. Instead, why don't you name your price? I'll pay out as much money as you feel does you honor. Yeah, I mean, Butley's clearly trying to work with this guy, right? I mean, even it's, yeah. if it's, again, kind of a high-handed place of privilege that the farmer clearly finds offensive, right? Anything Butley says is just making it worse. Yeah, Butley should just uh, shut up. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, matter. of course, Helgi refuses the offer. Helgi's dumb. Take the money. No, he is. Uh, and he's so dopey that he actually announces a formal summons of Butley right then and there for the theft of the hay. Oh, it's a, man. a crime for which he says he intends to pursue a sentence of outlawry. Outlawry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for a, a couple handfuls of hay. Now, Boltley, still leaning on his fancy spear, listens to all of this with a, a, a wry smile on his lips. What's he got to smile about? I mean, in part because this is a ridiculous situation. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of crazy outburst that goes viral on the internet these days all too often. Uh-huh. So this is uh, Helgi as Karen. Uh, or or Ken or who? I don't know. Sure. Whatever. Yes. Uh, so Helgi isn't done yet, by the way. He he now asks Botley when he left home. And when Botley informs him that he's been on the road for quite a while, Helgi throws out another accusation. It's crazy. Well, in that case, I declare that you've been out on the road and living on others for more than a fortnight. Ooh. Yeah, and that means he can announce a second summons charging Botley with vagrancy. Which is just hilarious, right? How I... dare you travel across the land? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, we don't, there's we don't vagrancy. care for outsiders here. Vagrancy loss, right? Uh, well, Helgi finally finishes raving, and Botley, you know, amused, now mm-hmm. speaks. Okay, Helgi. You're making rather a big deal of this, so... I'm going to have to make a move against you as well. That doesn't sound great for Helgi. I mean, it's not that bad. Uh, his men do encourage him to just kill Helgi for the offense. So, <laughs> you know. 
Instead, Boldy announces his own countersuit, a summons charging Helgi with slander, and then another summons, matching two for two, uh, that accuses him of trying to get his hands on his valuable property Mm -hmm. through treachery. And the penalty that he plans to seek is also outlawry. So take that, Helgi. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Stick your head in doo doo. It's this scene's kind of nuts. It is. I, it's also kind of hilarious, you know. And before Boltley and company ride off, he pauses to give one of the farmhands nearby a fine belt and a knife, and he says, "Please give this to the lady of the house as a token of my appreciation." I'm told she spoke up for us earlier. And with that, they ride off to Thorstein's farm at Halls, where they are welcomed and treated to a fine feast. That is that is the the oddest digression. I mean, this 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 does not make sense. <laughs> but it's worth it. Uh-huh. And John, I just have to wonder, do you think all that back and forth summonsing will have any effect on the shape of Boltley's journey? I wonder. I wonder. Part 5. Warm Welcomes and Cool Partings. You know, this is getting long enough that it started to really feel like a saga. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> you know? I don't feel like we should be on part five of a Thouter. <laughs> I mean, this episode's going to be as long as most of our Lockstyle Saga episodes. I mean, yeah. Well, but as it is, is appropriate it, for the conclusion to Lockstyle Saga, which this author desperately wants us to be. I would also point out, I know we're midway through here. Um, it's a good time to check in. Um, I would also point out that this is 10 full chapters, and we're going to cover the whole thing in one episode. Oftentimes for Lock so, Saga, we were doing three to four chapters. I'm sorry. So are you actually going to try – do you have the stones to try to congratulate us on how long this is taking? <laughs> uh, no, I have the stones to congratulate us on – we're going to get through a 10-chapter episode. I see. In the same amount of time that it would normally take us to do three or four uh, chapters. Well, good for us. Good bully for us. <laughs> and speaking of bully. Right. Uh, oh, very clever, John. You're such a clever boy. Oh, thank you. Now, as Boldly rides off, Helgi runs into the farmhouse to tell his wife Sigrith all about his encounter with Boltley the madman. Mm-hmm. Now, poor, you just imagine poor Sigrith listening <laughs> to him patiently as he complains. And then slowly it begins to dawn on him the gravity of what he's done. Yeah. As, as the reality of the situation sinks in, he says... I have no idea what I should do here. How do you deal with a man like him? I am no man of law, and I don't have many friends that would support me in this case. I wonder why. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you should have thought of all of that kind of stuff before you went uh, mad and started throwing out accusations and serious lawsuits to a very important man over nothing. That's pretty much what his wife Sigrid says. Uh, she tells him that he's made a spectacle of himself in front of the noblest of men. Uh, everybody loves them some Botley. And mm-hmm. if I had to guess, I'd suspect that you'll end up as you deserve, losing all your wealth and possibly your life as well. Hmm. Interesting. I, I really like this. And I, I, part of me wonders, is there a connection here? There's almost like mm-hmm. an echo, right? Because earlier in the saga, we had um, Thorolf's wife who also right. wasn't very supportive of his stupid behaviors. Right, right, right. The, well, you know, we talked about this. This is actually true in Luxtal Saga as well. Remember, we talked about, um, that's a, it's a saga where the 
the the morality of Iceland is really in mm-hmm. the hands of sort of women and the elderly. Yes, right? they're yeah. the one. They're the ones who sort of speak out against the kind of banal corruption of of the the powerful. Yeah, and and the saga author handles this uh, really really well. Um, I'm going to read just what it says after she speaks. It says, "Helgi listened to her words, which he found rather hard to take, but he suspected." <laughs> They would prove to be true, uh-huh. as he was a cowardly <laughs> wretch, despite his bad temper and foolishness. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's things are pretty hopeless for Helgi at this point. Uh, but Sigrith has a big heart. Right now, you have to remember that she's a kinswoman of Thorsten Hellenarfson, uh, the uh, man that Baltly is on his way to visit. Uh, she acts quickly. She gets a horse saddled and ready for a fast ride down the valley to Thorsten's farm. And by the time she arrives, Botley and his men have already been feasting and partying with Thorsten for a while. So they're feeling pretty mellow. Sigrid pulls her kinsman <laughs> aside and explains the situation to him, noting especially how generous Botley's offers of compensation have been. She also explains, in detail, just how stupid her husband has been throughout the entire scene. Uh, nevertheless, she does ask Thorsten to intervene on Helgi's behalf and to use his influence to make things right with Botley. It, it, it's a big ask, but quite reasonable, I think. Uh-huh. And Thorstein agrees to do what he can. He's going to try it yeah. out. Yeah, he approaches Botley at the feast and asks him to do him a favor and drop the charges that uh, he's brought against Helgi, noting that the words of such simpletons are not worthy of our notice. Now, Boltley quickly agrees with Thorstein on that issue, and he even says that he's not going to allow this incident to upset him at all. It's really not worth the trouble. But he also says that he doesn't intend to drop the charges just yet. He says, let's wait until spring and see how things go. Right now, and Thorstein makes it clear that this is an important issue to him, that their friendship could be on the line if Boltley refuses. And he even offers him the best horse in the district, along with his herd, as compensation for all the trouble. Right. A generous offer. A bribe. One that yeah. I think echoes Boltley's father's offer of the finest stallion to help smooth things over with Kjartan after he had stolen Gudrun. Stolen's a little strong. <laughs> I mean, it's a matter of interpretation. But just like Kjartan, Boltley Boltlison refuses the offer of the finest horse and the herd that comes with it. Mm-hmm. He says, it's really not worth all that trouble for you. I wasn't upset by it. And I don't think it will be upsetting when the judgment comes in. Oh, yeah. Thorsten is starting to catch on that he might not be able to help turn Botley from this cause. Yeah. Uh, and as a last ditch effort, he offers Botley self-judgment in the case if he cares to accept it. But Botley doesn't budge. This upsets Thorsten, who says, You're choosing a path that will be bad for all of us here. Even if Helgi is a worthless man, and he is, I am related to him by marriage. I simply can't deliver him into your hands to be killed, since you so stubbornly refuse to let this go. And you and I both know the charges he has brought against you won't look good for you when he brings them to the assembly. But no matter what Thorsten says, Boltley stands firm in his intent to prosecute Helgi for slander and treachery come spring. This cruel twist of fate and Boltley's obstinance 
ruin any potential these two men might have had at sealing their bond of friendship through this visit. Because of that, they part on what's called cool terms without exchanging Mm. gifts. Yeah. Okay. So, John, what exactly do you think is going on here? If it's not important Mm. to Boltley, why does he refuse to give in, especially how little weight a man like Helgi carries as a, a mere farmer? I mean, we have to remember that this this conversation, the original conversation between Boltley and Helgi, didn't happen in a vacuum. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Boltley had his followers with him, had his friends with him. This entire conversation was witnessed. And well, Bolt- it was witnessed by twelve merchants. Like yes. twelve of those guys that yes. are with him are merchants that he has been housing, but they're going to go back on their ships and uh-huh. they're going to go around the world, and that uh, that's good. they're going to carry with them. And you know these guys may be Norwegian. Of course, we know that Icelanders don't have to look bad in front of Norwegians, uh, <laughs> but whether they are or not, they're going to carry the 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 story of Baltley's encounter with this nonsense man Helgi, uh, and how it turns out. Yeah. If that story ends with, and then Baltly backed down as soon as he was asked by a powerful man, that's not great. That's mm. not that's not a good ending to that story for Baltly, right? That, as you said earlier, the game of honor, right? It's it's always happening. Baltly yeah. is perhaps unwise to let himself get into a sort of slap fight of lawsuits with a man like Helgi, but now that he's in it, backing down is not really an option that he has. Yeah, I think that's he's interesting. Stuck. That's really interesting. I, I've I've got some thoughts mm-hmm. on it, but I want to save it to the end when I want to kind of. We're not going to necessarily do a summons of Boltley's character. Oh God, no! But we're we're going to talk about Boltley and who he is and mm-hmm. what's going on in this in this particular tale. All right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think on uh, especially on the surface and maybe all the way through. Um, that is exactly right for Boltley. It's it's really a matter of honor, and mm-hmm. he can't he can't if he's on this journey to kind of build up his reputation and his honor, he can't encounter some silly farmer and then back down from right and get yeah and get screamed at in front of his men by this guy and then yeah. back down from a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. At the, at the same time though, he's trying to build a relationship with Thorstein, and Thorstein mm-hmm. has certainly a lot more power than than Helgi does. It could make some sense to be like to be like you. You know what? You're right. Yeah, that guy I mean, is like a. It's like swatting a fly away. Right. It doesn't really matter. Right. Our friendship is more important, and this journey and the security of this journey and the success of this journey is more important. Which is why but, I actually like Butley's response, which is to keep saying like, "No, no, it's no problem at all." <laughs> yeah, it's no problem like, at all. But uh, you know, Thorsten keeps framing it as "I'm going to save you the trouble and the harassment." And it yeah. says, no, I'm, I'm good. It doesn't, <laughs> yes. I'm not the least bit bothered by any of this. <laughs> it's it's not going to be a problem to prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. Right. It won't bother me well, a bit. To carry on your metaphor, right? Swatting this fly is not going to cause me any trouble. Right, exactly. But it will, I will enjoy it. Yeah. I will uh, enjoy it. Now, this, is a, this is a heck of a journey for Butley so far. Uh, so do we know if he's ever going to make it to Goodman the Powerful's farm at Motherville? Hmm. Part six, there and back again, a Butley's tale. Clever, very clever. <laughs> now, to answer your question, yes, Boltley does finally arrive at Mothraveller, and Goodman the Powerful is very happy to see him. 
They have a great time together. They feast. They get to know each other for a full fortnight. It was a fortnight feast. There's a lot of fortnights in this uh, in this thought I'm noticing. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, at some point during this two-week bro-down, Goodman asks Botley if the rumors are true about his conflict with this nobody Helgi and this <laughs> much more important person, Thorsten. Yeah. Uh, Botley plays the whole thing down and quickly changes the subject. So Goodman tries another approach. He asks Botley what route he intends to take on his, his way home to Tunga. When Botley responds, he intends to go back along the same route that he came on. Uh, Goodman asks him to reconsider. Maybe stay at Maldervetler until spring because of the freshness of the hostilities with Thorsten. Yeah, maybe uh, cooler heads will prevail if enough time passes. Yeah, I like the way Goodman is thinking, but I I don't know if that's how Icelandic men of this age approach what we call an insult to their honor. Yeah, I mean, that's which I mean, really is how Botley apparently is thinking of this, whether or not that's a legitimate way to consider what's happening. That seems to be the way he's responding to it. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, men, uh, and I do mean men, have a very long memory uh, for these kinds of slights and the kind of wounds that they inflict rarely heal, no matter how light the wound itself. Yeah. And so Boltley remains obstinate. And when pressed by uh, Gudmund, mm-hmm. he finally says that he's not going to change his plans on account of anyone's threats. And then he really unleashes. There's a nice long paragraph in which he really <laughs> fi- finally lets go and, and says what he's thinking. You should, you should just read that. Yeah. He, so he says, uh, while that fool Helgi was carrying on so stupidly, tossing out one slenderous charge after another and hoping to take my spear king's gift off me for a mere tuft of hay, I thought to myself that I would see to it that this buffoon got what he deserved for his words. I've got other plans for my spear. <laughs> now, John, when I read that part, I think he's intending to bury this this spear into Helgi's brain. Uh-huh. But hold your horses. He goes on to say, I wanted to give this spear to you, Guthmund, mm-hmm. along with the gold arm ring that the emperor gave to me. These treasures are better off in your hands than in Helgi's clutches. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Guthmund is the the gold standard when it comes to making a friend up here. But uh, even though this is a very generous thing, that last bit kind of undercuts the gift just a bit. Yeah, I mean, everything sounds really noble. And he did say, I have other plans for the spear to Helgi at the time. So I think he did intend to give it to Guthmund from the beginning. That's Mm -hmm. why he brought it. Um, And I think that he's insulted that Helgi was trying to take this grand gift from him. Mm. But at the same time, when he says it's better off in your hands than Helgi's clutches, it almost sounds like he's giving the spear and arm ring to Goodman because he suspects that maybe he could lose them to Helgi in the lawsuit. But yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if that's the case. I think that Boltley is just so frustrated at this point with the way that this trip has turned out so poorly due to this nobody farmer Helgi's ridiculous behavior. It's all ruined. Yeah. Perhaps, but, I mean, who's being ridiculous now? Right. I mean, good question. Who's the ridiculous one now, dog? Uh, (laughs) Now, Goodman is deeply touched by the gifts, meaning he's impressed by how expensive they are. And he gives Butley a gold-decorated shield, a golden arm ring, and a costly cape embroidered with gold thread. Ooh, that sounds Uh nice. 
As they're about to part, and of course now they're the best of friends because they've exchanged gold with each other, Guthman warns Boltley again that traveling through Svarfordadal is would be a grave mistake. Well, of course he does. And he's right. Yeah. But, you know, Boltley doesn't care. He's got other plans. He tells Goodman not to worry about about it, and uh, then he rides off. And that night, Boltley seeks shelter at a farm, a new farm, mm-hmm. owned by a man called Otar. And it's unclear whether, I, I feel like he just kind of happens upon this farm. I don't know that there's a plan to stay there. Uh-huh. Um, but it's man's called Otar, and he's described as a bald man wearing an outer jacket made of animal skin. You know, Andy, when I was reading this, I, I, I came across this character, Otar, who's, they immediately say, a bald man wearing a jacket of animal skin. And I, I just, I instantly assumed that this guy had to be a mythological figure. Right. Uh, uh, you know what's funny? I did too, because the first thing with the name, right? The first thing yeah. that comes to mind is yeah. Otter in, um, in Volsunga Saga. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, but yeah. it turns out, uh, as far as I can tell, nope, no connection at all. Just a guy no. named Otar. He's a helpful fella mm-hmm. in animal skins, right? So leather, who, leather. Uh, yeah, leather. I guess. Yeah, I, I like. I really do like the idea. It says he's a bald guy standing outside his farm. Mm-hmm. Wearing a badass leather jacket. That's right. He's a cool guy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we feel like this guy should be something, but uh, let's not get carried away. He's he's not a member of the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a member of the Jets. Oh, is he a shark then? Well, I, I, I bet he can dance just as well. Okay. Well, whatever gang he's in or whatever myth he's from, Otar is really happy to have a guest of Boltley's stature staying with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it makes cool. him look good, right? I mean, think of about course. the men this guy stayed with. Yeah, exactly. And to seal this relationship, Otar not only gives Boltley fine gifts, he also promises to ride with him for part of the journey, which he does. And when it comes time for them to part, Otar delays and offers Boltley another fine arm ring, mm-hmm. which Boltley eagerly accepts. Yeah, I this is I don't really like the way that exchange goes. Uh Otar is really generous, uh, uh, very generous, and maybe a little overeager. But yeah. Boltley doesn't really need to keep taking arm rings. He doesn't need that second <laughs> Especially one. from this guy, right? Right. Well, And Boltley's a man who's just jangling with gold arm rings already. Yeah. Uh, he even says that Otar's being far too generous, but then he pockets the ring all the same. Well, I mean, if Otar doesn't want to give it, he shouldn't offer it. You know what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this a little bit later, but because yeah, okay. we're almost done, I want to keep yeah, it going. Yeah. But That's I fair. think there's something to it. I think yeah. there's something to this offer and what happens. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, and and you're right. Uh, Otar is very happy to have Boltley accept the arm ring. He even says, "You're do what, uh, we need a voice for this guy. Uh, he's a badass biker dude. That's the way I'm thinking of him. But he's not really. He's just a farmer. But he's not. He's a little. He's a little like bald turtle head wearing a leather coat. <laughs> That's right." <laughs> You're you're doing the right thing, Boltley. Which suggests that there's a little more to the exchange than meets the eye. So we're right, right to suspect that there's something useful about Altar. Right. And Although I guess Boltley I, I have must to admit the, recognize that too. I have to admit the voice I chose there suggests he's less a biker and more of a sort of just turtle-headed guy, maybe myopic, <laughs> slightly mute. Yeah, you f- you forgot the leather jacket. Yeah, he's I forgot the leather biker jacket. part. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, too late. On. It's it's canon now. All right. Uh, he's a he's a you know he's the librarian biker. Even bikers <laughs> need somebody to take care of the books. 
Right. Uh, so, uh, this this exchange at least ensures that Autar will be able to stick with Botley as a companion for another, uh, well, a somewhat more dangerous stretch of the journey home coming up. Right, right. You know, at this point, the narrative shifts back quickly to Thorstein's farm, where we find out that news has already arrived that Botley's on his way. So Thorstein is staying true to his promise to protect Helgi, and he prepares a party of 30 capable men to ambush Boltley as he passes through. That's a lot of men. It is. Uh, and while that's happening, we're suddenly introduced to another farmer. Yet another farmer. We're going to meet the entire population of North Iceland by the time this is Yes, we are. Uh, Every this, farm. This man is named Jot, who is known as Vatle Jot. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, if you don't know him already, you'll be meeting him soon because we'll be encountering him when we get to Vatle Jot Saga. Yes. You know, John, uh, we've talked about it a couple of times, but I've been meaning to do that one for a very long time. But then we always mm-hmm. like kind of make a connection to another saga after we finish a saga. I mean, and we just haven't gotten to it. You know, we're getting down to the short strokes. We don't have that many sagas left. We'll, we'll be getting there soon. Yeah. So, uh, John, what is Vatla Yolt doing in this story? Oh, he just lives nearby. Oh, great. He's just yeah. in a farm nearby. Well, for now, that's all the author wants to tell us. Aside from a few interesting details about what Yolt likes to wear for everyday pursuits and <laughs> what he likes to wear when he's preparing for a fight. It is a very, it is an interesting little <laughs> aside. Like, it really interrupts the whole narrative of this little tale to say there's mm-hmm. this guy on a farm called Vetlir, whose name is Yolt, and he likes to wear brown stuff and, and carry a, a pole mm-hmm. axe, I think, every, for everyday stuff. And then he busts out the black and a broad right. broad axe right for for killing uh yeah it's weird so it's over as soon as it starts the introduction yeah. of Lyot. Yeah. um but i think the idea is just like the beginning of a new episode he's the author is trying to set the various pieces in place mm-hmm. and once that's done we move right back to boltley who's making his way westward up the valley and right into the spot where thorstein and his men are waiting now otar manages to spot the ambush early he sees the men in the distance on the other side of the river. And suddenly, once he sees them, he turns his horse and rides off at top speed. Yeah, and, you know, it's... You might very well suspect cowardice here. And honestly, there was a moment when I uh, read this for the first time that I kind of had that reaction. I thought this Me was too. going to be yeah. a, another Helgi Seals testicle moment. Right. Uh, but the, the tone of that gift exchange earlier suggests that Otar... He might be doing something worthwhile. So we have to wait and see. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Seal's testicle run all the way to the all thing and then warn someone and tell them they need to get up there? I mean, he ran a long, long way. I mean, he wasn't helpful in the moment, but he did, <laughs> He did, you know, serve a purpose. He did, no, he did kill one man before he ran. Yeah. He wasn't totally, not totally I just, useless. I just, I, I'm not going to have the Seal's testicle run through the mud, John. <laughs> Well, whatever Otar is up to, uh, Boltley and his men ride boldly towards Thorstein and the ambushers on the other side of the river. Mm-hmm. Now, the saga makes it very clear that the ice on the banks of the river has recently broken up, but there's still a very thick frozen patch running down the middle. Mm-hmm. And seeing their opportunity, Thorstein and his men run out onto the ice and begin closing the distance. I do love a good river battle on ice. Yes. Uh, and... Helgi's there as well. He's shouting to the men in Thorsten's party that it's it's high time to see what Botley is made of. 
Will, will Botley's ambition and eagerness be enough to carry the day? Or are there some men of the North here who dare to take him on? <laughs> uh, what about you, Helgi? Do you dare <laughs> take him on? Well, hmm? all right. We, in fairness, he doesn't really get a chance. Yeah. As soon as Botley hears Helgi's voice, he launches a spear in his direction. Uh, it lands firmly in Helgi's stomach and drives him back into the river where it sticks fast in the bank, uh, dangling Helgi's lifeless corpse into the water. And in case anybody, before anybody thinks that this is sort of an ironic thing that he finally gets Butley's spear. No, remember that Butley gave King's Gift the spear yes. to Goodman. This is just a random nothing spear. That's right. Helgi yes. gets nothing. He gets <laughs> nothing. Yeah. And uh, when I first read this, I, I did think, I wonder if it was supposed to be King's Gift, because that would have been perfect. Right, right. right? The, yeah, the, I mean, from a literary perspective, that would be a better story. But also from a literary perspective, it's kind of cool, like you said, you don't get that spear. You get right. just right. a spear. Right, yeah. it, won't, it won't be King's Gift that kills you. It's just yeah. some nothing spear that I got yesterday and will forget about tomorrow. Exactly, because that's all you're worth. That's, well, a, that's all you're worth. That, now that Helgi's dead... The proper battle begins with mm-hmm. Boltley pressing forward and easily breaking the line of Thorstein's men. Right. Thorstein well, rushes forward and clashes with Boltley. Almost immediately, Boltley lands a deep wound in Thorstein's shoulder and then another on his leg. Uh, which means, by the way, if you're keeping score, Legbiter has finally bitten a leg. It's about damn time, I mean, it only uh, took several sagas to oh get it done. Oh, my God. Uh, Botley, by the way, also takes a wound, but it's not as serious. Yeah, yeah. And and while this fight rages on, we then shift back to Otar, who's riding like a madman to a farm. In fact, he's going to Vetlir, where Ljot lives. And when he arrives, he shouts to Ljot, who I imagine just kind of rocking in a chair on the porch, which <laughs> obviously isn't the right you know, setting or probably anything. not. No, <laughs> probably not. Happening, Sipping from his jar of shine. That's right. But I like to imagine that's what's happening. Uh, he, he pulls up in his, uh, uh, on his horse and he shouts out to Lyot. Now is the time to prove yourself a man of honor, Lyot. And Lyot stands up and says, Oh, uh, what would that involve? Otar? Okay, uh, John, I just want to point out that one day we'll do his saga. And oh, if that's, that's the voice, that's good point. That's if good that's point. canon, yeah, no, no, do you no, want to no. do that voice? I for just, the whole I was, saga? I was going for he's, st- he's drunk off the shine, but <laughs> oh, I see. Well, let's, let's erase that <laughs> that's image. Terrible. That's a terrible voice if we actually have to do it for an entire saga. Yeah, I think you need to make a commitment here of yeah. what you're going to do. Oh, is it going to be, time. am I going to have to do his voice? Oh, I think that's being established right now. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, all right, well, in that case, uh, Yot says, Oh, and what would that involve, Otar? Okay, it's canon now. You're going to have yeah. to remember that. This is Yot's voice. I'm Yot. Uh, Otar Somebody says, write this down. <laughs> I expect they're fighting at the river by now, Thorstein of Halls and Bortley. I think it would be a most fortunate thing if we could put a stop to their hostilities. Yeah. Uh, and with that, uh, Yot gathers his own men together and they all ride down to the river. By the time they get there, three more of Thorsten's men have been killed, in addition to Helgi, who's still kind of dangling from a spear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yot and his crew force their way in between the fighters and hold them back from further violence. And Yot shouts, Stop that at once! More than enough harm has been done! This ends now! 
and I will decide the settlement between you all. But if either one of you refuses, you'll be attacked. Wow. Good for Lyot. John, he sounds like Thingman material, and I'm... Well, yes, he I does. Don't know, I don't know uh, anything about him, but he sounds yep. good. Uh, in this in this thought, he comes off very well. We'll see how he comes off in his own saga. Uh, but for now, his, uh, his words and actions bring the fight to a close. Good for him. Uh, everyone agrees to Yolt's promise to determine an appropriate settlement. So in other words, he's going to be now the judge. And then everyone goes their separate ways. Uh, Thorsten goes home, but Yolt invites Botley back to his farm at Vettler, which Look might suggest... Old- the way he's thinking in terms of the settlement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look at old Boatley. It's it's really a, a kind of a Matthew Principle thing here, right? Yeah. This uh, Yet another great political contact for Boatley on this journey that he just uh-huh. stumbles into. Well, good for uh, him, I guess. Right. And let's not forget Otar. Uh, mm-hmm. He rides with Boatley all the way back to the Yolt's farm. And that's when Boatley unleashes a horde of gifts to reward Otar for his excellent service. Well, good for Otar. John, if anyone has earned their gifts in this story or many of the sagas that we've read, it's Otar. I mean, at this point, though, I think he's mostly just getting back the arm rings that he already gave to Baltimore. I mean, <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, now, after some time passes for everyone to heal, which they do quickly because, as we're told, they are well looked after. Yeah. Uh, Yot finally calls all parties to gather at an assembly for his settlement decision. And everyone with an interest in the outcome shows up. And here's Yot pronounced the settlement. It's actually, it's quite fair and, and quite legally uh, binding as one would expect, right? It's very kind of, you know, it's very careful in balancing things. Yeah, Helgi's death is to go without compensation because of the horrible slander he directed at Butley. The wounds received by Thorsten and Butley balance out. It's, well, that, yeah. that part's convenient, but I don't think quite fair. Uh, I believe the saga is fairly specific in indicating that Thorstein took the worst wounds in the fight, that that uh, yeah. you know, Boatley yeah, just but took the, minor. The law is interested in the depth of the wound so much as the context in which they are received. Okay, uh, so right. nobody Maybe. argues with these wounds with this uh, with this uh, uh, association of one wound with the other. Okay. As for the three men that died in Thorstein's party, Boatley has to pay compensation for those. But finally, for his attempt on Boatley's life, Thorstein has to pay him a hefty fine as well. Well, it's all very reasonable, and it does sound to me like it's going to balance out with nobody paying anything in the end. Well, but that assumes that the men who died in Thorsten's party are Thorsten's sort of men from his farm, that he would be the one to receive that compensation. I'm not sure contextually if that's the case. This might be compensation paid to the families of those men. Yeah, that's true, but I'm wondering if paying Botley directly. I, I, I get all that, but I'm wondering if the amount... Uh, all I'm talking about is the amounts. Sure, right? sure. But the end if result the amounts would be... that Boltley has to pay for those right. three men might equal, equal the amount of compensation oh. he's getting from Thorsten. Might very well. Uh, but the end result there would be that Thorsten is poorer. Boltley has not gained or lost anything, and the families of the dead have gained something. I mean, it does pay to be wealthy and connected. I mean, sure. Um, and of course. Uh, there's a uh, another element here. Boltley ends up with yet another powerful friend in Yacht after all this concludes. Well, not only that, Boltley, Boltley gets to ride home with all of Helgi's livestock and property from Scathe. Oh, yeah. But but not because he's greedy, or at least that's not the only reason. Yeah, let's not rule see, that out. 
Sigrith, Helgi's wife, who really couldn't stand her husband, but did defend him as best she could. Mm -hmm. She asks if she can ride west with Botli. Mm -hmm. And so they ride on until they come back to Miklaber, where they meet Arnor once again. Right. Arnor is not really surprised by the difficulties Botli has encountered in his journey in the north. Uh, He says, You've been very lucky in this journey, Botli. It can truly be said that few, if any, chieftains from other districts will have gained more honor here in the north, especially considering how many more men bore grudges against you beforehand. Yeah, that's interesting final words. Um, And again, it underscores something of that attitude towards the Mm -hmm. north in this saga, but we can talk about that in a moment. To conclude, Boldy has a peaceful journey home to Tunga. Thordis mm-hmm. is relieved to see him. She had heard rumors of the conflicts that Boltley had stumbled into. And from that point forward, Boltley lives, according to this, a quiet and peaceful life, enjoying the respect of all around him. It's a fitting end to Lakstyla Saga if this is designed as the new end. Right. Although we do get a very, very brief, like one sentence conclusion about Sigrith, Helgi's uh, widow. Yeah. She came back all the way to Tunga with Boltley, and he manages to find her a worthy match, a new husband. And he treats her with great respect. What a happy ending. There you go. That is Boltley Boltlison's Thouter. Um, now, John, uh, yeah. we've been running a little bit long on, Present. On, on this, but I think we should take a moment and try to make some sense of all of this. I mean, what is this story really about? Mm-hmm. What is this author doing or trying to say, if anything? And how are we meant to feel about Boltley? Surely we're meant to be impressed, right? Like, Boltley's Boltley. Right. I mean, I think, as is the case with so many of the the texts that we read, right, part of the agenda here has to do with the people who are writing it and the people who yeah, are alive exactly. when it's being written. Right? Uh, Boltley is a connection back to the saga age for the people who are writing the sagas in the 14th, 13th centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, he is bigging him up, making the story, as you said earlier on, about him rather than Gudrun, yeah. uh, I think is a way of establishing the sort of the, the male line, right? The the patriarchal yeah. line uh, back to the sagas, right? This is, Lockstall Saga ends as much of that saga runs as a story of women, their motivations, their mm-hmm. interrelationships. Their sort of their way of protecting and defending their honor. Yeah, this story reasserts the centrality of kind of the 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 male figure, the male hero, mm-hmm. to the importance of saga narratives. Yeah, and male political power and how yeah. that's how that's navigated and created mm-hmm. and and exploited. Right. Yeah. Um, so because Laxalis Saga is definitely interested in that as well. Yes, but it certainly doesn't end on that note. You know? Right, right. And I think this is, you wonder if the, what we're seeing here is, you know, we talked a little bit about how the ending is a little bit unsatisfying in Lockstyle Saga, right? For, mm-hmm. for for me, at least, it was because Lockstyle Saga suddenly takes a turn toward establishing Gudrun as the most Christian woman in Iceland. Yeah. When that is, when that appears to be so at odds with her character throughout the saga. But for a reader in the 14th century or later, Perhaps the problem is more that the saga moves away from the stories of the men who would be the ancestors of those reading and writing the sagas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's a there's a push in this Thouter to reassert the importance of the male line. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have two other kind of 
quick questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one about Boltley. I think we need to kind of address Boltley's character from another angle. And I want to I want to tackle this one from looking at the structure of this narrative, mm-hmm. because as we were going through it, and, I, and I'll admit I didn't I didn't make this connection immediately. It's not until we were actually talking about it tonight that I made the connection. But we, as we were mm-hmm. going through the story of Thorolf stuck up, Thor, and you were talking about the nickname Thorolf, uh, the unbending. Mm-hmm. I started thinking, well, one of the things that saga authors do well is create echoes and ripples and 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 play with things that had happened previously that, that kind of help us understand what's going to happen in the next part of the text. We need to be looking forward and backward at all times. So my question for you is, how are we meant to read that first section of this story, if we think of it as a mini saga, that is really focused on the behavior of Thorolf the Unbending and the and the uh, the repercussions of his actions, right? He starts a petty feud because he's not willing to bend, not willing to mm-hmm. um, to um, do what is logical and and right and moral to avoid a conflict that is going to be rather chaotic. So, is that representing Boltley's behavior with Helgi, or is that representing Helgi? I mean, I think what's happening in the early part of the saga, we're dealing with a narrative that is far more interested in establishing, uh, as we said, this is a narrative that's written in primary colors, right? The good guys are good, the bad guys are bad. Yeah. Um, so it begins with this very kind of black and white, right? The the good guys are the good guys, meaning Botley. Uh, the bad guys are the bad guys. Uh, but... The narrative rapidly evolves in a different direction when we develop the story of Helgi as a new a new antagonist. Um, so one is that the story's arc is the establishing of Boltley as sort of the master of his domain, right? The the man who controls anywhere he goes and becomes popular anywhere he travels, even in the lawless, amoral north. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other side of this. There's, there is a, a, a structure in some sagas, and Ravenkelt saga is one of them, uh, where the initial conflict, Henthor saga is another, the yeah, initial yeah. conflict is only there to really kind of move things uh, into motion. They're almost like a cold open in a modern television show, right? That you, you get this kind of, it establishes mood without really being the point of the story. Mm. And that first conflict really just puts into motion the things that we need for Baltly to run across Helgi and so that we can see how a kind of, you know, a, a somewhat uh, high-handed protagonist deals with a man he regards as beneath him, but who legitimately has a bit of a grievance against him. Yeah, yeah. Right. And But to get into that position, we need that cold open of the first conflict that Boltley handles so masterfully and establishes himself as a man who's kind of rising in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a part of me, I, a part of me wants to always look at class issues in these mm-hmm. texts um, and and look for some kind but of. That's what it's all about, you see. Some, <laughs> right? Yeah, that 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 exact perspective, some kind of uh, Marxist approach to this thing, mm-hmm. but applying a Marxist reading to this text that says this is a, a you know. Um, a reflection mm-hmm. of an imbalance in the uh, class structures or trying to apply right. some kind of reading that says Boltley's the bad guy, man, that, yeah, 
it's this stuff is written by the bad guys if you want to look at it from that perspective yeah yeah so they're not going to cast themselves in a negative light so boltley's when we get to that stuff where boltley's seemingly behaving childish about the Mm healthy situation i think you address that quite rightly that that this is an issue of honor for boltley uh that extends well beyond the matter of their difference in status it is an unforgivable crime that helgi has committed and he needs to pay for that but to take up that point um the reason that helgi is upset is that this aristocrat and his entourage have shown up on his land and are stealing hay because their horses are hungry yeah. Um, he's, I mean, Baltley is, if we, if we strip away from, again, that Marxist reading, if we strip away what the text tells us about their characters, what we have is an aristocrat abusing the property of a poor man, relatively, mm-hmm. uh, and a poor man who then attempts to assert his rights in law to seek remuneration for the misdeeds of an aristocrat. Right. And who finds this this man who, again, he's not really poor. He's said to be wealthy enough. Right. Uh, but relatively. Enough, but like he's not said, an relatively. aristocrat. Right. He's a nobody. And because he pushes back against this force, this right. economic and political force, mm-hmm. he's ground up and he's left dangling on the end of a spear right. uh, over a river, you know? Well, and even his wife, you know, sort of rejects him in favor of the handsome aristocrat who has come in and abused their property. Exactly. But at the same time... We have to ignore a lot in the text here. We have to sort of read fully against the text to get there. But but it can be understood that way. I think that's all right. But the the text also suggests to us, through the behaviors of people like Thorolf Stuckup or Helgi, Mm -hmm. um, that... When you behave that way, when you are unbending, because I think, going back to my question, I think Helgi, as much as you might want to say Boltley is unbending, Helgi's the one who's unbending. Helgi's the one who is stuck up mm-hmm. in that exchange with Boltley. And so Helgi repeats the same failings of, of Thorolf stuck up, and his wife rejects him as a result. And then he has to travel around and seek the help of better men. So he goes to, or his his wife goes to Thorstein, in the same way that Thorolf has to go to Thor than Thorvald, right? And that creates a big mess for everyone involved. But I think that the the saga, or I shouldn't say the saga; it feels like a saga. Uh, the tale kind of echoes its structure across the whole thing, with Boltley right. coming out on top in every case because he is the moral, social, political superior of all. He is the hero of the story. But if we read this as a, uh, a kind of social narrative, right, having a kind of social message, yeah. uh, Helgi's failing is that he behaves as if he is more aristocratic than he is. Oh, yeah. Right. That his haughtiness, as you said, right, his his sort of his stuck up nature is him claiming a kind of aristocratic right to yeah. deal with violations of his property as he sees fit. He yeah. essentially... Really, if if we look at what he's doing here, he's claiming self-judgment. Oh, yeah. Right. That's, I mean, you know, when we look at someone like uh, Thorbjorn in uh, Hromkill Saga, who refuses a generous, quote-unquote, generous settlement from Hromkill in exchange in order to hold him accountable in law, right? We say, well, that's a that's a, a, a small, you know, timer going up against the big, powerful man, and we applaud that. Helgi's doing the same thing, but he's instead 
being ridiculous about a very small violation of his property. That's right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But is in functions almost as a parody of that little man trying to fight back against the powers that be. I agree, but the, I guess the big question is whether or not this this tale's author is conscious of that and pushing mm-hmm. that kind of agenda. And well, I already said I think we have to read against text for a lot of this. Uh, yeah, think, exactly. You know, so it's it's if you want to apply thing. a Marxist reading to a saga, you have to <laughs> exactly, you have to read right. against type because you said it's the bad guys who are writing this. <laughs> yes, it's the bad guys who are writing it. If you're t- using a Marxist perspective yeah. on on something like this, but it's always where I think it's always worth reading in those directions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that you can you can read Lacksteller Saga or any of the other sagas from a variety of theoretical perspectives. Right, it sheds new light on the situation. Um, and that's really, I think, what's so fascinating about uh, literary studies is that we get mm-hmm. to do those kinds of things and look at a problem from a variety of perspectives uh, because that sheds new light on the, uh, the world that we live in and mm-hmm. our approach to it. So um, the, the other the, the final thing, but we, I don't think we should talk about it too much because we already touched on it, is, is yeah. about that northern agenda, that, uh, that attitude right, towards the right. north. Um, it's clear to me that there are good guys in the North because it's full mm-hmm. of them. Uh, one of the things that's shown through Boltley's journey is that Boltley, is not, he wouldn't survive his journey without the help of people like Arnor or Otar or Guthmund or mm-hmm. any number of people that he meets along the way. Yeah, um, They're the ones that make it possible for him to succeed in this journey. So they exist mm-hmm. in the North, but the saga definitely casts the North in this, I think, rather negative light. Um, I think, well, it's, I would say it, what we, what we don't see, and I think, you know, in a lot of texts and a lot of contexts, this would be the case. We don't see a stereotyping of Northerners, Hmm. right? Because we do have as many Northerners, maybe more Northerners who are helpful and who are mindful of Botley's status and his situation, uh, as we do people like Helgi. What we see instead is there's a difficulty in reining in the excesses of violence and of uh, uh, sort of local fiefdoms, right? Local yeah. sort of power uh, bases that really in the rest of Iceland, at least in this Thouter, uh, there's a sense of a more civilized kind of balance of powers, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's I mean, this is go- this is edging way out on a rickety limb here. But it's worth remembering that the North is the one quarter that couldn't be kind of organized as one thing. Yeah. Right? They had to create uh, 12 chieftaincies in the North, not nine, because of the physical divides that kept the North from really being one unified thing. Yeah, it's topographical, right? Right. Part of the issue here is topographical that allows for the creation of these fiefdoms. I mean, the fact that in this— People are more isolated. In this short narrative, what's established in the first part is that within that first district where where Holar is, um, the people that hold the most power seem to be the Heltesans. But outside of that that valley, not really. Yeah. Right? But Goodman the Powerful doesn't seem to hold sway in that valley in the way outside, Yeah, outside of his own fiefdom, right? Yeah. He's less powerful. Yeah. So the North becomes more dangerous because there's less of a, you, you could almost say less of a centralized authority, which mm-hmm. sounds not appropriate. Yeah, it's, for, almost, it's almost counterintuitive for an Icelandic context. For an Icelandic thing. Yeah. And, and yet the assemblies, the things, the, the, mm-hmm. the control of the 
chieftains as a collective in the other regions mm-hmm. uh, almost suggests more of an organization of power, more of a centralization right. of power than maybe what you see in the North. And that's what makes the North a little bit more difficult to get justice in, which is that's what Arnor is explaining in his uh, final kind of comment to Boltley, that it's it's really remarkable that you were mm-hmm. able to come up here, journey around and gain this kind of honor in a place that that generally speaking is hard to get justice in. Um, so good right. job on you, Boltley. Right. And the, the yes, the agenda here is to establish that from the perspective of the rest of Iceland, the North is a place where the law has very limited power and things tend to get a little chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. If if people are wondering why we started this podcast uh, after these <laughs> many, many, many years, um, John and I have talked before that we started this out, uh, started out in graduate school, uh, going to a pizza place and uh, mm-hmm. reading sagas and talking about them just to Shout each other. Shout out to Willington Pizza. Yeah. As a, you know, as a class, we got credit for it. Uh, amazing. <laughs> we drank beer, ate pizza. <laughs> And uh-huh. talked sagas. And earned credits. Yeah. And the conversation that we just had, I, I think, is very, very close to the kind of thing that we were doing in right. graduate school. And that's what right. we've been trying to to do with Saga thing a little bit. So that was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Yeah. Uh, right. But with that, I think uh, we should bring this uh, saga not so short to a close. <laughs> right. Uh, if you would like to contribute to this conversation in any way, reach out to us via our usual social media points of contact, uh, whether that's through Discord or on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. And you can also reach us at uh, our email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also embroider your question in gold thread on the finest cape you own and send it to us as a token of your appreciation. Ooh, I would like that. We'll no doubt read the question as we're twirling our cape stylishly in front of a full-length mirror. (laughs) Well, they, I mean, they might want to embroider the message backwards if we're going to be reading it through the mirror, right? Oh, Andy, the cape the cape comes off, Andy. Not, just not once it's it, on. You can just reverse it and read it that way. I mean, once I put the cape on, why would I take it off? Eh, fair but, enough. Uh, but they could save a step or two by, uh, by embroidering it backwards and thus expedite the process. Mm-hmm. All right. And that will do it for this saga short. Uh, I, for one, had a great time. How about you, John? Did you feel like we accomplished something today? Uh, I think we accomplished something. I'm going all to right. withdra- withhold my opinion as to what we accomplished. Excellent. Well, you all <laughs> tell us how we did. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>